Well, this is Palm Sunday, and it's the day in the church year when traditionally we mark the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And what a significant time this is in Scripture. You know, I had never noticed it before this week, but Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday marks a significant section in the Gospels, in all four of them. I actually did some math. My sermon notes don't usually show percentages and stuff like that, but uh, 28% of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 21 through 28, are covering the triumphal entry on through the resurrection and the ascension. Mark 38% of his gospel uh, is focused on these last, this last week of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. 26% of the gospel of Luke and 54% of the gospel of John. Now, when someone devotes that big a section of uh, a writing to something, you know it's important. And let's face it, this last week in Jesus' life, it's all coming to a head. Things that were put into motion before the foundation of the world. We uh, shared in the psalm, from the psalm this morning, this is the day the Lord has made. And that's talking about the day when the King, the Messiah, presented himself in Jerusalem. It had been uh, foreordained centuries before it occurred. And so uh, this time that we see here is so significant. And it's a time that I have faced with frustration every Palm Sunday. It always concerns me that everybody's supposed to get all excited. And says, oh, we need to be like the people in Jerusalem. And yay, let's have a big time and wave our palms and all that sort of stuff. Knowing that by the end of the week, those same people that were saying, oh, we need to be like them. They're going to be spitting on him. They're going to be yelling, crucify him. And so I want to give you a little bit different perspective this morning than just the fickleness of the crowd, because that's what seems to stand out. If we just look at what's going along, uh, we just see the fickleness of the crowd, how they can be uh, just so excited about Jesus one minute and so against him the next. And let's face it, we are prone to be like that. We are prone to have our own ups and downs. But, you know, all the time, we ought to be focusing on Jesus, right? We ought to be looking at him and not the people around us. And so this morning, I want us to look at Jesus and not just the crowd and what the crowd thought of him at the moment. This is a time of great insight and great misunderstanding. And the great insight was that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
He is the Messiah. He is the son of David and his time has come. Up until just before he entered into Jerusalem, any time that uh, somebody uh, got his help, he'd tell them, be quiet about it. Because he didn't want uh, people uh, uh, interfering with his earthly ministry by trying to uh, elevate him to being the Messiah too soon. And so uh, here we see him just before he's entered, enters into Jerusalem, a blind, two blind men actually on the road to Jericho start crying out, Lord, son of David, which was a messianic title. Lord, have mercy on us. And they cried out again. And instead of saying, shh, don't tell anybody, he says, yeah, that's me. What can I do for you? You see, his time has now come. And they said, Lord, that our eyes might be opened. And their eyes were opened. Well, he has come to his time. And as it says in the gospel of John's beginning, he came to his own. And uh, he is the Messiah. He's the son of David, the long awaited ruler of Israel. And he is fulfilling all of God's promises. But the great misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works, take his throne and make Israel free, free from Rome. The crowd had their own expectations of what he was going to do, but it wasn't going to be that way. He would take his throne but it would be through voluntary suffering and death and resurrection. The first sermon that Peter preached after the resurrection comes to an end with the words, this Jesus God raised up so that he was exalted to the right hand of God. And the apostle Paul says that he is now king, says he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And so Palm Sunday was a day of insight, and it was also a day of misunderstanding. The insight gave joy, and the misunderstanding brought about destruction. The murder of Jesus a few days later, and the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later. And Jesus saw it all coming. And what I want to focus on this morning is Jesus' response to this blindness and hostility that he was about to meet in Jerusalem. Indeed, he met it already in this uh, uh, in, in, in his entry. The crowds were crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But then right after that, it says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And so Jesus knew what was about to happen. The Pharisees were going to get the upper hand. The people would be fickle and follow their leaders and Jesus would be rejected and crucified. And within a generation, the city would be obliterated. Jesus says it like this in uh, the 43rd and, or the, yeah, and 44th chapters uh, of uh, Luke the 19th. Uh, uh, the 43rd, 44th verses in the 19th chapter of Luke. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God had visited them in his son, Jesus Christ. He came to his own, as we said, and his own received him not. They didn't know the time of their visitation. And so they stumbled over the stumbling stone that we've already mentioned in our readings earlier today. The builders rejected the stone and threw it away. Jesus saw this sin and rebellion and this blindness coming. In fact, he knew it had to come. And how did he respond? And when he drew near and saw the city, it says he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over the blindness and impending misery of Jerusalem. How would you describe those tears? Some people look on them as tears of failure, like he reached out to them and he was rejected, like he didn't mean for it to be that way. Some would consider them tears of frustration. Uh, John Piper calls them tears of sovereign mercy. And I like that. They are tears more along the line of what you might see um, in a mom's eyes as she is saying, this is going to hurt me and this does hurt me more than it does you. If anybody could ever say that and mean it at the moment, it was Jesus because this was going to hurt him a lot more than it was going to hurt us. But he grieved that day. He grieved for the moment tears of sovereign mercy. And the effect that I pray that this is going to have on us this morning is first to make us admire Jesus and to treasure him above all others and to worship him as our merciful Lord. And then my second prayer this morning is that seeing the beauty of his mercy, we become merciful with him and like him because of him and for his glory. First, let's admire Jesus together. What makes him so admirable and so different than all other persons? What sets him apart? What makes him uh, just so unique and so inimitable? It's that he unites in himself so many qualities that other people uh, in, in them, they would be just totally contrary to each other. When we put together the words sovereign and merciful, we see an image of supreme sovereignty. And we can imagine tenderhearted mercy. And who do we look to to combine the perfect proportion of merciful sovereignty and sovereign mercy? We look to Jesus. No other religious or political contender will ever come close. Three different things that we see uh, at this time. 
It says, first as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. You see, Jesus had made a name for himself. He'd made his name for himself as a worker of miracles and, and they remembered them. He had healed leprosy with a touch. He'd made the blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk. He commanded the unclean spirits and they obeyed him. He'd stilled storms. He'd walked on water. He'd turned five loaves and two fish into a meal for thousands. And shortly before he had raised Lazarus from the dead, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem in Bethany. And so as he entered Jerusalem, they knew that nothing could stop him. All he had to do was just speak and Pilate would be gone in a puff of smoke and the Romans would have been scattered. He was sovereign and they were right and he could have done those things. And there was going to come a time when he will do things like that as he come when he returns and straightens this world out the last time. But this time, this time he didn't come like that because he didn't come to straighten things out at the moment. But he is sovereign. And the depth of his sovereignty is just incredible. As we mentioned, uh, uh, going back to the very beginning of time, this moment uh, was planned. Jesus has planned all of this. The Lord has planned all of this, uh, all of it, all the way, all the way through the crucifixion and the resurrection. He planned this rejection. He knew it when he walked in three times before he got to Jerusalem. As he began the journey to Jerusalem, it says that he, he took his uh, disciples aside and he told them that they're going to have to, that he's going to be going to Jerusalem that he was going to be persecuted and he was going to be killed. And then the third day he was going to rise from the dead. Later on, they'd been out ministering and they were coming back together. He told them that again. And then again, before he entered into Jerusalem, he told them that he was going there to die. It was, it was written. It was going to be. It was going to happen. Now, and it's just to show you how incredibly uh, uh, sovereign Jesus was and is over all of history. I gave you a handout. Now, I'm not going to go through this entire handout with you this morning, but there's some calculations down at the very bottom that I think you might find astounding as he goes through the calculations here. And I've seen three different people come up with the same answers uh, uh, approaching it themselves. It says, uh, starting about the second paragraph from the bottom. So from Daniel 925, we are told it will be 69 times seven years until the Messiah comes as prince for the Jews and Babylonians. The year was, and he goes on through all this stuff and said, so this occurred in most likely 444 BC in the month of Nisan, the first of Nisan, in 444 B.C. corresponds with March the 5th, 
444 BC. And then he goes on and he winds up, he says, uh, Passover in AD 33 was on April the 3rd. That was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. A prophecy given nearly 500 years before Jesus was born tied to different events that had to take place on certain days in history, all that culminated with Jesus getting on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem exactly at the time that was preordained 500 years before. Yes, he was sovereign. He was all powerful. He was almighty. And so he goes, knowing what he's facing, going there for a reason. What in the world could that reason be? Well, there's another uh, indicator here in this passage. Uh, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was a king, not just any king, but one sent and appointed by the Lord God. And he was the Lord God. It says in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A universal, never ending kingdom backed by the zeal of Almighty God. Now here was the king of the universe who today rules over the nations and galaxies and for whom America and Syria and Russia and China are all just as grains of sand and vapor. Third, we see when the Pharisees tell him to make this people stop blessing him as a king, he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because the time had come. The time had come. The day was here. And if it wasn't acknowledged by the voices of the people in Jerusalem, the very stones would have cried out. Creation would have acknowledged him as the sovereign Lord. It's remarkable that the tears of Jesus in verse 41 uh, are so often used to deny his sovereignty. They seem to think that somehow, like I said earlier, that he was crying because of a failure. No, it wasn't a failure. He would delight in their salvation. He would have delighted in it, but they're resistant. They're going to reject him. They're going to hand him over to be crucified. And so his purpose for them, as we see and we said, has not failed. But something's quite not right about this objection to his sovereignty. He can make praise come from rocks. And so he could do the same for rock hard hearts in Jerusalem, couldn't he? What's more, all this rejection and persecution and killing of Jesus is not the failure of Jesus' plan, but the fulfillment of it. He said this in Luke 18, 31 through 33. 
Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written, planned, let's just put there, everything planned about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will arise. The betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the spit, the flogging, the murder, and so much more was planned. In other words, the resistance, the rejection, the unbelief and hostility, these were not a surprise to Jesus. They were a part of the plan. And he says so. And so he goes on and he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Remember what Jesus said about uh, his parables back in Luke 18 or in Luke 8:10. He said, "To you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. God, you see, was handing them over to the hardness of their hearts. And it's judgment. If you want to read about that more, look in Romans 9. Uh, Paul lays it out there exactly what's happening in Jerusalem at this time. The mercy of God is a sovereign mercy. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But here's the point that I want you to see today. This sovereign Christ weeps over hard-hearted, perishing Jerusalem as they fulfilled his plan. This unbiblical, uh, it is unbiblical and wrong to make the tears of mercy a contradiction to the serenity of sovereignty. Jesus was serene in sorrow and sorrowful in sovereignty. Jesus' tears are tears, as we've said, of sovereign mercy. Just adding to his being all-powerful, we see him instructing his disciples to go and uh, go into Jerusalem, go into the city, and they'll find a donkey tied there with its coat. He said, I want you to bring them to me. And so they do so. And it says that this colt had never been ridden on before. Now, I want to get this right. I want to look. I want to peek here. Okay. The disciples went, did just as he said, they, just Jesus instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt. Now then, it says uh, up here, it says, uh, uh, tied there a colt. Uh, with a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. So they brought both the donkey and the colt. And it says, and they brought them and they laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Now, up till this point, you see, this colt had never been ridden. No one had ever gotten on its back. And so the disciples knew he was going to ride one of them that they weren't sure which one. So basically they saddled them both up for him and just let him pick. They had learned a bit 
They had learned not to just assume, of course, he's going to ride the big one. And so I had a, a friend who was a uh, world champion cowboy that this passage right here is what got him into scripture and brought him to salvation. When he saw that Jesus got on an unbroken colt and rode it, he said, Jesus was a cowboy. <laughs> and that got his attention. And then he could hop on a colt that had never been ridden before and ride it into Jerusalem. That got Broadus Gravette's attention. Well, uh, here it should get our attention because I don't know if you see the supernatural thing that's going on here. Uh, that just doesn't happen. You don't just, uh, I, I think that if it had bucked and kicked and uh, Jesus had to break it, they would have put that in there. He got on it and he just rode it. And the donkey, the little colt, didn't give any objection because he knew who his master was. He was the master of the universe. There's just little things like this that you see. You see Jesus' supernatural power at work all through uh, the stuff going on here. And uh, you see, we've seen the prophecy fulfilled. Therefore, his sovereign power is the more admirable and more beautiful. It's the harmony of things that seem intention that makes him glorious, merciful, and mighty, we sing, don't we? And holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and then merciful and mighty. We admire power more when it is merciful power, and we admire mercy more when it is mighty mercy. As I said, my prayer is that you would see his mercy and admire his mercy so that you will become like him in his mercy. Three ways that Jesus is merciful and we can draw out of this context. And I pray that uh, I will become like him in all of these. And I pray that you will too. First of all, Jesus' mercy is tenderly moved. He feels the sorrow of the situation. Jobeth earlier today exemplified that as she was taking prayer requests. She was tenderly moved. She feels the sorrow of a situation. And I admire that about Jobeth. Uh, this doesn't mean that Jesus' sovereign plan has wrecked on the rocks of human autonomy. It means that Jesus is more emotionally complex than we think he is. He really feels the sorrow of the situation. And no doubt there's a deep inner peace that God is in control and that God's wise purposes will come to pass. But that doesn't mean you can't cry. In fact, on the contrary, I appeal to you here, pray that God would give you tears. There's so much pain in this world today, so much suffering uh, far from you and nearby. Pray that God would help you to be tenderly moved. When you die and you stand before uh, the judge, Jesus Christ, and he asks you, how did you feel about the suffering going on around you? What will you say? I promise uh, you're not going to be feeling good at that time about saying, well, I saw 
through how a lot of people brought their suffering upon themselves by sin and foolishness. You know what I think the Lord would say to that? I think he'd say, I didn't ask you what you saw, what you saw through. I asked you what you felt. Jesus felt enough compassion for Jerusalem to weep. If you haven't shed any tears for anyone's losses but your own, it probably means that you're pretty wrapped up in yourself. You know it? So let's repent of our hardness and ask God to give us a heart that is tenderly moved. Second, Jesus' mercy was self-denying. Not ultimately, there was a great reward in the long run, we know, but it was very painful in the short run. And this text is part of the story of Jesus moving intentionally towards suffering and death. Jesus is entering Jerusalem to die. He said so. We're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered up and they will kill him. And this is the meaning of self-denial. This is the way we follow Jesus. We see a need for Jesus. It was seeing the sin of the world, the broken bodies and the misery of hell, our need of salvation. And because you are so important to him, him doing something about that need was important to him. And we should move with Jesus, whatever it costs, toward need. We deny ourselves the comforts and the securities and the ease of avoiding people's pain. We embrace it. Jesus' tears were not just the tender moving of his emotions. They were the tears of a man on his way toward a need. He saw your need. He saw the importance that he do what only he could do for you. And that leads us to the last way I want to share with you that Jesus is merciful. First, he's tenderly moved. Second, he is self-denying and moves toward need. And now third, he intends to help. He intends to help. Mercy is helpful. It doesn't just feel, though it does feel, and it doesn't just deny itself, though it does deny itself. It actually does things that help people. Jesus was dying in our place so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life with him. That's how he helped. What will it be for you? How are you doing in ministries of mercy? How are you and your spouse doing together? How's your family doing? What is tenderly moving you these days? Is there movement toward pain and suffering or misery or loss or sadness? That means denying yourself in the short run and multiplying your joy in the long run. And what help are you actually giving to those in need? I'll close with two prayers for you this morning. First of all, oh, that we would see and savor the beauty of Christ, the Palm Sunday tears of sovereign joy. And oh, that we would, as we admire and worship him, be changed 
by what we see and become more tenderly moved, self-denying, and need-meeting people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.